Let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is living and that it is powerful. Father, thank you that it gives us instruction. Lord, just chastening when we need it. Lord, comfort and peace when we need it. Lord, it is everything we need. We just pray this morning that you speak to us through your spirit, through your word. Lord, give us understanding of these things. Lord, may they truly impact our hearts and our minds, Lord. May we not just learn things that are academic, that we add to our list of things we know. Father, we pray that we would see a change in the way we live our lives. Lord, that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we are up into Hebrews chapter 3. Every book of the Bible is amazing, but I've just been so blessed just reading and studying and preparing for for these sessions. So many things that personally uh, have blessed me, encouraged me, challenged me. I just pray this morning that the Lord uh, helps me to communicate just half the things uh, that are on my heart. I want to read to you. Like I did last week um, from this, it's just it's called the Jewish New Testament, uh, and it's just a translation from a Jewish perspective. Not everything I agree with the way they've translated things, but overall I think it's quite helpful uh, just to see things. So uh, turn to Hebrews chapter three, follow it in your Bibles, and uh, I just think there's some things that come out of this um, that are helpful just to give us a bit of clarity, and then we'll go through verse by verse, looking at the text. So Hebrews chapter three, therefore, brothers, whom God has set apart who share in the call from heaven. Think carefully about Yeshua, whom we acknowledge publicly as God's emissary and as the high priest. He was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful was faithful in all God's house. But Yeshua deserves more honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house deserves more, more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Also, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, giving witness to the things God would divulge later. But the Messiah, as son, was faithful over God's house. And we are that house of his, provided we hold firmly to the courage and confidence inspired by what we hope for. Therefore, as the Ruach HaKadosh, which is the Holy Spirit, says, Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts, as you did in the bitter quarrel. On that day in the wilderness, when you put God to the test. Yes, your fathers put me to the test. They challenged me, and they saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not understood how I do things. And in my anger, I swore that they would not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers, so that there will not be in any one of you an evil heart lacking trust, which could lead you to withdraw from the living God. Instead, keep exalting each other every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you will become hardened by the deceit of sin. For we have become sharers in the Messiah, provided, however, that we hold firmly to the conviction we began with, right through until the goal is reached. Now, where it says, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the bitter quarrel, who were the people who, after they heard, quarreled so bitterly? All those who Moses brought out of Egypt. And with whom was God disgusted for 40 years? Those who sinned. 
Yes, they fell dead in the wilderness. And to whom was it that he swore that they would enter not his rest? Those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of a lack of trust. There's some ideas and some thoughts there that we'll expound as we go through this. Um, let's just go straight to the text. Um, we've obviously had our introduction. We've looked at the, the background just to quickly remind you that there's five warnings given in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first one we saw in chapter 2 was that warning about drifting, not having an anchor uh, spiritually. And so uh, that, that chapter 2 starts, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Again, I need to just emphasize the point here. The, the writer who I believe is Paul, and for many reasons I think that's the case, um, is underlining the point that we need to hold on to this faith, that it's so easy, and we'll see when we get later in the book, that the sin so easily ensnares and leads us astray. We need to keep looking to Jesus. But the real point that we see as we go through this is that the author is writing to believers. These were Hebrew Christians, but nevertheless they were Christians. They were people who were saved. And as we go into chapter 3, we're going to get the second warning, which is a warning about disobedience. We'll talk about it in a moment when we get there. But it starts, Wherefore, holy brethren. Okay? These are the people, the recipients of this letter. These aren't unbelievers. We need to understand that. It's so important to get the context of who the, the recipients are so that we understand what is being said and what it actually means. A lot of people struggle with Hebrews because they misapply or misunderstand. They think that some of these things are, are written to the unsaved. But very clearly, every reference to the people that have been reading this makes it clear that the audience to whom the writer is giving this letter were believers. They were Christians already. They'd been saved. The danger was and already been addressed that they could slip back into the things they once held on to. For, for these individuals, they'd come out of a system of Judaism, of the law and everything else. The law was so important to them. Angels were important, all these kind of things. And so gradually, as we go through these opening chapters, the writer addresses the issue of angels, that Jesus is better than angels. He's higher, he's greater than they are. We're, we saw in the previous chapter, Moses uh, alluded to, or the law rather alluded to, which was given by angels through Moses to the people. And now Moses himself, somebody who was so important to the Jews, is being addressed. Uh, and the comparison is drawn between Moses and Jesus. Now, once again, these Hebrews had understood that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. They'd even accepted him as the Messiah. But for some of them, it was a big jump to put him on a pedestal and say he's above Moses. Moses was the, the, the founder, in a sense, of the, the Jewish religious system because of the law. Of course, Abraham's the father of the nation. But Moses was held in such high regard. And so... There's a challenge for them to kind of undo some of their thinking. But nevertheless, it starts again, wherefore, and that leads to all the things we've looked at previously, that Jesus is better, that he's greater, that he came down. The last chapter really speaks about the incarnation, Jesus coming to earth, and that took upon himself the form of a man, and as such has gained this inheritance over all things, and that he's able to strengthen and help those who are tempted. That's how the previous chapter ends. Wherefore, holy brethren... Even just in that statement, that there's two important facts to make. One, holy because of Jesus. 
That's the only way we can be holy. None of us can be holy because we try really hard. Many people do try really hard to be holy and they become very frustrated and disappointed because we can't be holy without blemish, without sin. We can't do that on our own. Holy speaks of the completed work of Jesus Christ. And as we saw back in chapter t- verse 10 of chapter 2, that Jesus is to bring many sons unto glory. And this work that he's doing. So to call us holy is an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ's completed work. Brethren, we've already seen that we've been invited in. We've been made part of the family. We've been adopted into God's family. That's a statement of fact. So this is, again, written to those who are saved because of the blood of Jesus, because of what he's done. And then we have that word, metikoi in the, the Greek, partakers. It says, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, the word, if you, you look in a concordance or whatever, uh, you'll see, it can be translated various ways. I, I like the idea of partner. Because partner of the heavenly calling. Or, you know, if you think of a partner in a business... Uh, certainly, if you think of a kind of a legal firm, you have employees. But if you become a partner, I, I had a friend many years ago who became a partner of a legal firm. And it's a big status thing. You're not just one of the staff, but you're actually somebody who is responsible for owning the business and, and everything else. Well, that, that's what we've been made. We've been made partners of the heavenly calling. Now, also, we're going to come back to this. I actually think the, another way of understanding this is, this is written, it says, Wherefore, holy brethren, those who would be partners. Because there's going to be a condition. We're going to see twice in this chapter a very scary word, and it's if. Okay, we'll see it twice as we go through. So don't take for granted the idea that a partner, in that sense, is an automatic given if you are a Christian. The holy bit is absolutely a a given, because if you are saved, it's not based upon your work, it's based upon Christ. Brethren, again, is a, is a, is a free gift that we've been adopted. We, we didn't have to do anything for that. But then that partaker is something that is conditional. We'll see that as we go through on. It says, partakers the heavy calling, it says, consider, so think about. Think about Jesus, it's gonna say. The apostle, the sent one is what apostle means. And high priest, Moses wasn't a high priest. Moses was certainly sent. The Lord called him and sent him to go and be the one to deliver the children of Israel from the bondage and the oppression that they experienced in Egypt. But Moses wasn't a high priest. Consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who we're told was faithful to him that appointed him. That's God, of course. And it's not to run down Moses, because it says, as also, and now we have a, a quote from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. Again, the writer here clearly has a great understanding of the, the Old Testament, and the Jewish Tanakh, the, the, the scriptures. Moses was faithful in all his house. So the statement is firstly that Jesus was faithful to God, but actually, you know, Moses too was faithful in his house. Now, when we talk about a house, we're not talking about a physical dwelling. Of course, house can mean that. But house can also mean a a lineage or a dynasty or a family. We speak about the house of Windsor. We speak about the royal family, don't we? We're not talking about a particular building. God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he would give him a house, effectively, a family. And Moses, in a sense, was responsible for the children of Israel and he had that, that 
that house in a sense. And Moses was faithful in all the things that God had called him to in the ministry he'd been given. And it says, for this man was counted worthy, speaking now of Jesus, of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who builded the house has more honor than the house. And it's, a, it's an obvious statement, isn't it? That somebody who builds the house is held in higher esteem. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of programs on, on um, the various channels we have on our TVs these days, you know, of how, home refurbishments and developments, all these kind of things. You know, and somebody who builds the house gets the honor, not the house itself. It's just an obvious statement. And it says, verse 4, For every house is builded by some man, and then this statement is thrown in, but actually he that builds all things. He's got, this is so Paul-like in his writing because Paul typically, the things he writes, always kind of interrupts himself mid-flow and adds something into what he's saying and then gets back on track. And again, you see the same kind of thing here. Actually, God is the one who's built everything. Everything is under God. Verse 5, And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. That's the difference. The relationship here is that Moses was being faithful as a servant for a testimony of those things which we, uh, which were to be spoken after. You see, Moses gave us through the things that the Lord showed him the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Jesus himself confirms that Moses is the author of those things. Moses wrote those things down. And the things that Moses recorded speak of the things that were to be spoken after, i.e. of Jesus. All the feasts of Israel have to do with Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. And particularly the ones we've seen prophetically fulfilled already. Of course, Passover, we spoke about it this morning as we celebrated our communion. That is a celebration of the lamb that was slain. That through him we would be delivered from that bondage and corruption just as the, the lambs that were slain in Egypt. The, the houses in Egypt were marked by blood on the lintels and doorposts. And all who went into those houses were safe. Well, just the same in Christ. All those in Christ are safe who are marked by that blood. Of course, then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated on the 15th of the month. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks again of that, as Jesus himself spoke, of that grain of wheat being put into the ground. It was actually as the, the Passover ended and as the Feast of Unleavened began, that's as Jesus' body is being put into the ground. And then the Feast of first fruits, that Jesus was the first fruits of those that rose from the dead. And so on. So all of these his ideas, these prophetic models, of course we've got that great example in the wilderness where it's referred to in John chapter 3, um, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus about it, about the serpent put on the pole as the people would disobey God and there was this plague amongst them and they don't know what to do, these fiery serpents going and biting them and so on. That, that if anybody looked upon this, this serpent, this bronze serpent that was on the pole, they would be saved, they'd be healed, and they were, miraculously. It's a bizarre incident. But of course in the New Testament it's explained, Moses gives us these models. Moses spoke of the things that were to come. Moses, I'm sure, didn't understand all of these things, but I'm sure many of them he understood were prophetic models. Verse 6, but Christ as a son over his own house. You see, the house is Christ's. Moses was a servant in the house. But Christ as a son over his own house. And then this is this wonderful statement, whose house we are. I mean, this is awesome. that We have been invited 
We have this privilege of coming into and being part of Christ's house, Christ's family, the plan of redemption. You know, when somebody invites you into their house, it's a lovely thing, isn't it? It's better than standing on the doorstep. You know, it's a privilege to be invited into somebody's house. And normally you don't tend to invite people in who are not friends. Well, not only have we been invited in, we've also been given that position of being brethren. Verse 11 of chapter 2, for both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So we've been invited in to the house. No longer are we to be lonely or on our own or left out in the world. We've been invited into this house. It says whose house we are. What an incredible blessing for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. We, we get far more than, than probably we anticipated. But notice this. There's an if. This is the first of our two ifs. Let me read from the beginning of chapter six, verse 6 again. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Why, why do we have an if there? What is it that's conditional? Well, it's not sonship because we've already said that we've been adopted, we've been brought in. There's something more, and this will become clear as we go through. It says, of whose house we are, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. It speaks of us doing something. It implies action on our part. A response is necessary for what Christ has done, so that we can be truly part of that house. Once again, this is written to believers. This isn't talking about unbelievers. This isn't what you must do to be saved. It's what we must do to inherit. Lots in scripture that speak about rewards given to those of God's family, depending on how we live our life. First Corinthians 3 is a great example. Uh, 3 John also speaks about us not uh, receiving a full reward. Jesus spoke about laying up treasure in heaven. There's much in scripture about rewards. And this is what we start to see in these verses here. Just an idea again, if we hold fast the confidence, literally the boldness is what that means, and uh, the rejoicing, the idea is glorying, that, that we should, in our walk with the Lord, we should be bold. We should be ashamed of what God has done for us. We should have that absolute confidence that it doesn't matter what anybody says, about our faith, about the way our lives have changed, about our love for Jesus, we should have that boldness that we don't care what the world thinks. It doesn't matter anymore. And that we should have this, this, so this rejoicing. It's literally glorying. You know, poor analogy, but you think of people that support particular football teams. When those football teams are doing very well, people are very happy to talk about the success of their particular team at the time. I notice Portsmouth at the moment are on a bit of a winning streak. I think they've got the best form in the in League One at the moment. And I'm sure that all Pompey fans are very, very pleased and very glorying in their success at the moment. I mean, there probably has been times, just possibly I'm saying, that maybe things haven't been so good. And maybe we don't tend to talk about our football teams as much at those times. But when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we should have that confidence. We should be glorying. We should be wanting to talk to people 
wanting to just let it shine. I, yeah, I, 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 I glory in my children. I rejoice in them. It's very seldom I'm in a conversation with people, particularly in a working setting, where much of a conversation will take place before I mention my children. You know, I mentioned I have four daughters, and people look at me with that kind of like, oh, you poor man. Um, but, you know, I say to them, no, no, they're wonderful. I just love them to bits. I love being with them. They're just so different in their characters, and, you know, each has got their own funny ways about them. They just, just make life just so much better. So blessed. You know, I'm so proud. Of, and immediately I go for my phone, and I get pictures of them, I show them, and, you know. But isn't that the way it should be with Jesus? We should want to talk about Jesus and our love for him. And this is what it's saying. This is what is being trying to communicate by the, by the writer here. That we should be having this boldness, having this rejoicing. And it says, of the hope firm unto the end. Because it's not just that, well, it's all done now. You know, Christ has, has died and rose again, we've been saved. You know, it speaks of all that is going to come. In our communion this morning, we spoke about what is yet to come. The marriage supper of the Lamb, when we're called home to be with the Lord. We will be with him forever. You know, and then when we get to heaven, we're going to celebrate. We're going to drink from that cup again. There's a conclusion of that, that last supper that, that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. It's not finished. It's still one. And we all get to celebrate that together. And we've already looked and we'll see much in this book about the millennial reign of Christ. You know, we, 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 we touched on it in the previous chapter, in chapter 2. It speaks in verse 5. It says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. That, that world to come is speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. It's not speaking of the new heavens and the new earth in the context here. It's speaking of everything the Old Testament has said about that time when Jesus will sit on the throne of David and rule and reign over the earth. Interestingly, Martin Luther was very skeptical about the book of Revelation initially as he was translating and so on and wrote a piece in one of his very early works questioning whether the book of Revelation was really part or should be part of the Bible. But it wasn't very long until he then released later works which showed a high regard for the book of Revelation. Clearly something had changed. And what had changed was his reading and understanding the book of Daniel. And as he read Daniel, he saw that all the things that the book of Revelation was speaking about had already been foretold in Daniel. Revelation wasn't really bringing us something new. It was just amplifying what God had already said through the prophets previously. God's word always confirms God's word. And so Martin Luther started to realize the reality of this coming kingdom. Sadly, most churches around the country have a real problem with Revelation chapter 20, which speaks, well, I think, with incredible clarity about the millennial reign of Christ, where Jesus will return and rule and reign on the earth for a period of a thousand years. Unfortunately, we go back to the early centuries, there was some confusion. Of course, the church was very persecuted, certainly in the first 300 years. And then suddenly, Christianity becomes legalized under Emperor Constantine. And it led some very sincere believers to say, well, maybe, maybe that was the tribulation. Again, it's not doing the dots together, it's not looking at the text, it's just to allegorize scripture. 
Well, maybe that was the tribulation. Now we're in the millennium. But they still believed it was going to be a period of a thousand years. But a thousand years later, nothing significantly changed. Jesus hadn't come back. And so they said, well, maybe the millennium is a, a kind of a, just a, a general idea. And then, and then it got to the point that we end up with people saying, well, the millennium won't happen at all. Or we're in the millennium now. Or whatever. All sorts of various different views and ideas we put forward through the centuries. The scripture is very clear. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago in, in Luke chapter 1, Jesus will rule and reign on the throne of David. That's exactly what Gabriel said to Mary. It's exactly what Zechariah promised under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when John the Baptist was born. He spoke about the one who would deliver them from their enemies, the nation of Israel. So no, no, all of this is looking forward to this incredible period of time that we're heading into when, as it said in the previous chapter again, um, that not all things are yet put under his feet. But it will happen. Where everything will be put under Jesus' feet. And of course, during the millennial reign of Christ, everything will be subdued under Jesus. It will be the completion of his work. In terms of reclaiming that which Adam lost. And so, again, speaking of the hope that we have, and that's why we should have this boldness and this confidence. There was once a, a Christian car sticker who said, laugh now, but one day we'll rule the world. That's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's kind of true. It's exactly what the Bible says. And the world can laugh at us now if they want, but you know what? One day, for those who overcome, we're told that we'll rule and reign with Christ. Wherefore, verse 7, as the Holy Ghost said, and now we're going to get one of three todays that come up in this chapter. All right, so not speaking about this particular day today, but he's speaking about now, this moment, this period of time that we're in today. If you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Now, this is an incredible comparison that is going to be drawn. It's going to take us back to the situation where Israel really upset God because of their lack of faith, their lack of trust, their lack of obedience. We're going to look at the scripture in a short while. This quote, by the way, comes from Psalm 95. So, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, and this quote today, if you hear his voice, this is the quote, and what the, the, the writer, the author he's doing is taking that and saying, actually, it applies to now. Just as it applied to that day, actually, it applies to this day too. Just as they were told, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, of course they did, as in the, the temptation in the wilderness, the provocation is referred to, that kind of bitter dispute, I think was the, the way the... the uh, the Jewish Bible put it. You know, this is saying that if we hear his voice, don't be like that. And then it goes on, it says, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. They, they, I mean, just think about the children of Israel for a second, just to get the context of how this should apply to us. They had been delivered from Egypt. They'd been there for a long period of time, in fact, 215 years, if you work out the details. 215 years in Egypt in total. 
not 430. People get those dates muddled up and mixed up. We'll look at that maybe sometime in some study. But it was 215 years they'd been there. The first period of time was a great period under Joseph uh, and so on. The Pharaoh that knew Joseph obviously really loved him and supported him and the whole family gets to live there and they live in the land of Goshen. It's great. But then another Pharaoh arrives a little bit later on who didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember all those things that had happened. Joseph dies at the age of 110 and so on. And so... the all of a sudden, as Israel, as a nation, is becoming a nation, the children of Jacob started growing and their descendants and so on. They're only there four generations, but that's long enough. And, and as a result of this, Israel starts to grow. Egypt becomes fearful. And so they start putting them under hard bondage and making them go and make bricks out of the straw and all the mud and things like that. And, and they were crying out to the Lord. At that point, God sends Moses, who does these incredible miracles. In the land of Egypt. Just imagine being an Israelite in the land of Egypt, thinking you have no hope. Just thinking that your life is going to be this constant life of bondage, a life of a slave. And then suddenly this individual comes onto the scene who was educated in Egypt and the incredible way that God engineered those circumstances with Moses. And he comes and starts challenging Pharaoh. And initially things get really tough, but then God starts sending these plagues upon the land. Every one of those plagues was direct attack in a sense on the gods of Egypt, showing that their gods weren't really gods at all. And then they get led out of Egypt, miraculously. The firstborn of all the, the, the Egyptians dies. And Pharaoh gets to the point of saying, please go. And then they're led through the wilderness. They think for a moment that they're going to be cornered and trapped as Pharaoh comes after them, but then miraculously they're led through the Red Sea. These individuals see this stuff. Then they get to Sinai. Well, first of all, they get to the um, Rephidim and they see the rock they're thirsty, the, the rock is split and water comes out and they, they've all got enough water then they get to Sinai and they see the Lord coming down on top of the mountain the whole mountain on top of the mountain on fire and so on watching as the, the law was given to Moses and then manna amazing, this, this food that just is on the floor every morning they just go out and they gather up and they eat it and bake it and they cook it, they fry it and and they saw all of these things. Their shoes, for 40 years, didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't need to be replaced. I was just thinking of how much shopping time that would save, just for a start. I mean, shoes are just, you know, they're functional, but why do we have to spend so much time shopping for them? But, you know, as they went through the wilderness, their shoes would have grown with their feet. That, that's great, I love that. You know, and God doing all these incredible miracles that they're witnessing. I mean, we see rebellions and so on, and the ground opening up. And I mean, there is no question that God is doing amazing things with this group of people. And then we get to the provocation. We'll come back to this in just a second. We'll look at the scriptures. And it goes on, verse 9. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works 40 years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err. Now actually in the King James it says their part. Okay, but actually theirs in italics if you see it. It's just inserted by the translators. It's okay, possibly helpful. But I actually prefer just to take that out. It simply says, they do always err in heart. It's a heart issue. They have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the writer spins this around and says, Take heed, brethren, 
Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exalt one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, that the word departing here, in some um, translations, some, it's translated around a kind of apostasy, unless some of you apostatize. But it's not in terms of departing from the faith. That, that's not the idea at all. And you, again, go check this out in the concordance or various tools, and so we have online nowadays. The idea is that take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you of an evil heart of unbelief. That's the key. And the, the idea is withdrawing from. Okay? Imagine in a relationship, you know, and again, just hypothetically, I'm sure this has never happened to any of you, but maybe your spouse or somebody close to you offends you, and you kind of withdraw from them. You know, you go into quiet mode. And somebody says, are you all right? Yep, fine. Are you sure? Right? Yep, fine. You know what it's like. You, know, you withdraw from that person. You kind of, you shut the relationship off. You draw away from that person. And that's what God's saying here. You know, let, be careful that we don't get into that kind of situation with God, that we withdraw from God, that we kind of put a barrier up. And again, that barrier may be something that's intentional, but it also could be something that we drift into. And we just drift away to the point that we've withdrawn from God. That God isn't the, the most important thing in our lives anymore. Now I want to take you to the Old Testament. Let's go to this passage in the book of Numbers. Turn to Numbers chapter 13. I just want to read this to you. Because again we get an idea here. Numbers chapter 13 verse 25. And it says, And they returned from searching of the land after 40 days. Okay, so this is when they're very close. They're nine days journey between 9 and 12, depending on which commentary and things you look at. But about nine days' journey from entering into the promised land. So close. So close to entering into their inheritance. All right? They've already been saved. They've been delivered from Egypt. No question about that. Every one of these individuals was saved. They've been delivered. They only saved in terms of salvation as we think of it. But saved from Egypt. Delivered from Egypt. And of course, it's a model. It speaks of us. And so... These 12 spies are sent into the land. And this is what we read. And they returned from searching out the land after 40 days, and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran and to Kadesh, and brought back word unto them and unto all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sent us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. The idea of milk and honey, of course, if he's got milk, there's cattle, there's livestock producing the milk. And if there's honey, then there's going to be bees, there's going to be uh, pollination and vegetation and fl- flowers and plants and everything else. The idea is this is a wonderful place. Lots of produce, lots of everything they need to sustain them and bless them. And, and he says, and they, they went to them, they brought back these things, he says, and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong. That's the people that were in the land, that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled. And very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. And the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. So they're saying, yeah, we saw these giants in the land. 
real giants, by the way. This isn't something that's made up. There's, there's a book in the British Library called The Lost Cities of Bashan. It was uh, by an individual who had been to northern Israel, to the area of Bashan, and uncovered these incredible dwellings, massive doors and so on. Just clearly, the people that lived there weren't just big on architecture. They had, they, they were big people. And there's lots of evidence we could talk about maybe some other time. Real giants they were, they were, they were fearful and frightened of. This is where all the, the Greek mythology comes from and everything else. It comes from real things that actually took place and then got twisted and so on. But verse 29, the Amalekites dwell in the land of the south and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and, the, and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it. He wasn't afraid. For we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, uh, excuse me, Caleb, he says, we be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which uh, we have gone to search is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come uh, of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. I put a, a note in this. I was listening to a commentary by John Corson on this. And he simply said that the real sin they had, and just to put this in context, this is the reason that God made them wander for 38 years. There was 48 years in the wilderness, but 38 years of wandering. Bear in mind, they'd already had the golden calf incident when they camped at Sinai. They set up an idol and called it God. But for that, God does not punish them by saying you can't go into the land. Those that were guilty, yes, they were, they were put to death. But the nation as a whole didn't perish for that. So you, you see all sorts of sin in a sense that, that we, we, we read of and see in their experience there was a situation with Korah where they rebelled against Moses. But God doesn't banish them from the land for that. This is the issue. This situation. Not the golden calf, not anything else. This is the issue. And John Corson said this. He says, they didn't believe that God would be so good to them. That was the problem. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust him. You know, sin is one thing in terms of the way we tend to think of sin. But actually, we, we have a, a definition of sin given here, and it's unbelief. It's not believing that God will do all that he said he will do. It's not believing that God, who is, who, who God is, who God is. It's not believing that God loves you. That God wants to bless you. That God wants to transform your life. That God wants to heal you. I mean, this is staggering. The, the sin, all the things that children of Israel did, guess God brought judgment for those things. But the real problem was they didn't trust him. And this is what the writer is saying to us. Be careful that you don't get into a situation, and he refers to it as an evil heart. We think of evil as rape and murder and, uh, and pornography and witchcraft and all those kind of things that you would tend to think of as evil. But God says evil is not 
trusting him. What a challenge that is to us, or should be. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing or withdrawing from the living God, that we get to the stage of not trusting him. And this is what the writer is trying to communicate here. And he says, but exhort one another on odd occasions. Is that what it says? No, it's not, is it? But exhort one another on Sundays. No, it doesn't say that either. Why? Well, because a week's a long time, isn't it? And, and during a week in the world, there can be all sorts of challenges that will come your way. All sorts of problems and domestic issues and, and life that happens around us. Problems with friends, with family, with children, with relatives, whatever. With work. And those things can cause us to stop trusting God. You know, there's nothing better than trusting God. And then seeing God do the incredible things that we don't know how he engineered or arranged or organized things, but he does those things. A number of times in my life, I've cried out to God and I've said, Lord, I can't resolve or solve this situation. I need you to do something. I need you to help. And you know, God has never failed me. Sometimes things take longer than I would like or anticipate. But, you know, God does things that are just beyond my understanding. So many ways, so many situations. God just wants us to trust him. As I've said, one of my favorite quotes of Chuck Misler's was that every day God will ask you the same question, but in a different way. And the question is, will you trust me? Are you trusting God today? Are you trusting God for the things this week? Well, we're told here that we need to exhort each other daily. That's how frequently we need to remind ourselves that God is in control. We need to encourage each other on a daily basis. While it is called today. One of the things I do for Marla every morning, we, we text each other. Um, when she gets up and she's having her breakfast, I'm normally on the train or sometimes arrived at work by that point. But I always send her a, a, a verse, just one verse, normally from Psalm 119. When the, the other girls don't have phones, as they get older, I'll do the same for them. But I do it because I want to encourage her every day. I want every day to know that she's read some scripture. Now, as it happens, she gets up, she reads her Bible. I'm just so blessed that she wants to do that. It's such a joy to my heart that she's growing, she's learning to love the Lord and what she wants to walk with him herself. But, you know... One day can lead to another day. and uh, you, know, you can have a challenge that suddenly takes you off course. And that's why we need to encourage each other daily. Again, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. While we still have this opportunity, while we have this chance, don't let things get to the point that any of us could withdraw from God or, or drift. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin, again, is classified and clarified here as not trusting God. For we are made partakers or partners of Christ if conditional, not salvation. Salvation is a free gift. Being part of God's family is a free gift. But the blessings and all that we're going to look at in chapter 4, we'll see, are all based upon this relationship and of us becoming partakers or partners by trusting him. It says, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence 
So the way we were when we were saved, that confidence, that exuberance, that love for the Lord we have, that just overflows, if we hold on to that steadfast unto the end, and he goes on and says, while it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, as in that situation in the wilderness, what was the problem? They were thinking about their own ability. Do you remember what they said? We were as grasshoppers in our eyes. Caleb, Joshua, the only two that got to enter into the land. Why? And those that were under 20. Those were all over 20, all died out in the wilderness. I mean, you imagine for years, Joshua and Caleb seeing people die and thinking, great, we're getting closer. You know, all that generation had to die out. And Joshua and Caleb, no doubt, really looking forward to going to the land. For 38 years they had to wait, but they saw God's promise. And again, this, this is given to us. That situation where they were so conscious about their own ability, their own stature, their own standing, what they could do, that God was cross with them. God's wrath, verse 11, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Didn't mean they went back to Egypt. Didn't mean God undid that deliverance they'd known. No, they, they were delivered like we're saved. But they didn't get to enter into that rest. The, the next chapter is going to talk a lot about this rest. And there are many Christians, and maybe some of us here this morning, that have not yet entered into that rest. That place where we get to walk with the Lord and every day should be a joy. Every day should be just an incredible stepping out in faith, seeing what God is going to do. So many of us get consumed with the, the problems, the things that are in the land, the reality of the, the issues around us, the giants that were there and so on. God is saying, don't make this mistake they made. Learn to trust me. Verse 16, for some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved? Forty years. So, um, but with whom was he grieved? Forty years. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? It's just because, you know, obviously Joshua and Caleb, they did enter in, but the rest of them, those that had rebelled, and verse 18, and to whom swore he that they should not enter into his rest? but to them that believed not. Not to them that sinned, in that classic sense, as we tend to think of sin, but to those that didn't believe, that didn't trust, that didn't recognize that God is who he said he is, that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us, that God is good and does good. Those that didn't hold on to those promises, that idea there to believe not actually is Obey again. Who were the ones that didn't enter in? Those that simply didn't obey. Didn't trust. More concerned about their own situation. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. What a shame. That generation died out. Every single one of them could have gone into the promised land. You know, God would have for us. So by the way, the promised land sometimes is, is depicted as being kind of heaven and, and so on. Uh, that's not the case here in the, in the context. Of course, in, in the promised land, when they finally got into to Canaan, what became known as the land of Israel, they still had battles to fight. And as a believer, there'll still be challenges, there'll still be battles that we have to fight. But we do it, <laughs> well, the battle is the Lord's. Yeah? God wants us to trust him. 
and to walk with him each day. And as we do this, the Lord will allow us to enter into this rest. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, just thank you so much for this reminder. Lord, it is your love for us that has given us this book to get us back on track, to get us back to that place where we recognize, Lord, that unbelief is a sin, that not trusting you is a sin, because you are such an amazing God and you have proven yourself to every one of us in so many ways. And we have your word as a record, as a testimony. We have the experience of Israel. And Lord, we know that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So Lord, please, give us that confidence, that boldness. Fill us afresh this morning with your Holy Spirit, that as we go from here, we won't step out into this week fearful or wondering or questioning, but that we would step out trusting you. Because, Lord, you will never fail us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.